We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. Hey, Wednesday. I am Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes Podcast. Got a great Wednesday show for you. Rob Paul of Sports Drink, a sports website that used to be called the Armchair All-Americans that I wrote for many, many, many uh, moons ago, joins. He is their NFL draft guy. He's the co-host of their podcast, Seven Rounds in Heaven. He does a really good job. I came across his work uh, a while back, I guess almost dating back to when I was in college. Um, really puts in the time did it uh, kind of learned how to do it as you know pretty much just as a passion project and then started getting paid for it so I think he works hard I think he does a really good job and he's just really good at it as well it's so always enjoy getting his perspective so we went through uh, some Matt Corral stuff some Jerry on Ely couple Ole Miss guys in there and then really just got into where he thinks the quarterbacks are going what might happen in the top 10 good fit for Corral and really just some general draft stuff so if you're a fan of the NFL draft I think you'll enjoy this conversation with Rob, a uh, great smart guy and uh, Canadian. So the podcast went international. I think he re- might remain the only kid, Canadian and international guest we've had on the pod. So uh, we're, uh, we're global, not even counting soccer corner. So how about that? So uh, anyway, great show. Before we get to that, though, I want to remind you the podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. So the world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Up 18 units on NASCAR on Sunday. Skybox NASCAR, Mark Harris and those guys over there, absolutely crushing it. Had a, uh, I believe they accurately predicted the race winner, some watermelon fellow. I don't know. I saw some uh, tweets about that. Uh, you NASCAR guys probably know what I'm talking about, but you need to check them out. They're going to have a picks package to fit your price range. Uh, just because March Madness is over does not mean Skybox is slowing down. They've got all kinds of different packages on the site right now. The MLB package is about to go live here, start of May. They've got the NBA playoff package that they keep hitting on. They had another winner last night, the over-under in Utah-Dallas. And then, excuse me, that was a couple nights ago. And then Denver-Golden State on Sunday. So they got a nice sweep there the other night. You need to check them out, though. Whatever you're wagering on, they're going to have a picks package to fit your price range whether that's month-long, season-long. I'd recommend going with the year-long all-access pass and all sports. It's going to pay for itself and then some. Working with Skybox is an investment. They're going to help lead you to profit more consistently than your own brain. You don't want the bookie texting you on Sunday night, Monday morning, 
ask you to uh, square up, adding to the scariest. You want to be texting him wondering where your supplemental income is. Skybox is going to help you do that more consistently than anyone in the industry. When you go on there and find a picks package, use the promo code RIPPY, R-I-P-P-E-E, and that'll get you 20% off. And it also let them know that we sent you over there. So check them out. Podcast is also brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Go see Greg. Oxford is so lucky to have a place like LB's. If you're a Rippy Wright subscriber, that's rippywrights.substack.com. You get a free newsletter from me three to uh, three times a week, two, three times a week, somewhere in there, and discounted meats. Right now it's a 16-ounce prime strip for 20 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. That's one hell of a way to kickstart your weekend. Just go in there, show Greg, Greg proof of subscription, and then go find all of your own favorites. Uh, all kinds of great stuff. Greg wants to make your grilling experience great. If he doesn't have a certain cut of meat, he will get it for you because he wants you to have the best experience possible. But there's all kinds of great stuff in there. Lane Train Special, Bacon Wrap Filet, all kinds of different cuts, delicious sausages, fresh seafood. It is the best butcher shop in the world. You need to go check out LB's. Been in the Oxford area for almost two decades now and uh, is absolutely the best place in the world to get meat. Check them out, LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. Okay, before we get to Rob Paul, I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, offer some, some thoughts on the baseball game last night. Ole Miss defeats Mississippi State 5-2 to two in Trustmark Park. Uh, to, I guess, even the season series of Mississippi State to a piece, Ole Miss's first Governor's Cup win since 2015. Good Lord, I covered baseball for was that six, seven years? That would have been my first year. Wow. One governor's cup win. I don't even remember if I was at that game. Could not tell you a single thing that happened. Point being, they broke a streak. And uh, that hasn't been the case with Mississippi State and Ole Miss lately. Ole Miss is usually on the end of a uh, streak that they don't want to be on. So they won the game last night. I don't necessarily know what to make of it. I don't think you can make anything over the top about it. Even Mike Bianco uh, mentioned as much last night. I think he was like asked a question about uh, is this the start of a run, and he just kind of shrugged it off and thought, yeah, I don't know, you hope so. Um, but I don't think he enjoys getting questions like that per se, and uh, I don't think this is necessarily the start of anything either. But who knows? It's got to start somewhere. doesn't count as an SEC win, but I will remind you if this team does get back in postseason contention for an at-large bid, the NCAA tournament committee looks at this as an SEC game. So it won't count in the SEC standings, but in terms of the NCAA tournament's selection committee's criteria this actually counts as a conference game so say Ole Miss is 14 and 16 or 13 and 17 kind of hovering right there on the bubble that will work in their favor that they won this game um I would almost like look at it as like a half SEC win it'll get the benefit of the doubt if it matters but if it ends up mattering but Ole Miss has a long way to go for it to really end up mattering um I don't know this was just it felt like more of the same I mean look Drew McDaniel credit to him he put together a solid outing. He goes five innings, allows just one earned run on two hits. He walked five, not ideal, uh, but struck out four and gave Ole Miss a quality start. He got him five innings, and then Mason Nichols was terrific in relief, and Brandon Johnson looked better for the second outing in a row. Um, you know, Ole Miss gets five runs. None of them came on home runs, mostly because that ballpark is ginormous, but, you know, I don't know. They also struck out 14 times and were one for 10 with runners in scoring position. I think this was more of a product of being just a little bit better than a not very good Mississippi State team and a not very good Mississippi State lineup. But hey, a win is a win, and this team needs anything good, uh, needs any, will take anything good happening for it right now, I should say. So I don't know. We'll see. Maybe they found a way to take two at Arkansas this weekend. I seriously have my doubts. 
Um, but, you know, a nice performance last night on the mound, and the offense was just good enough. Uh, Jacob Gonzalez, Kevin Graham, two hits apiece, and then Tim Elko, or excuse me, Jacob Gonzalez, and yeah, Tim Elko had a hit in there as well and drove in three runs. So, a uh, nice win for Ole Miss last night. We'll see if it's the start of anything or just kind of more of the same. All right, here is Rob Paul on the NFL Draft, Matt Corral, and uh, much more. All right, we are now going international for what still remains our only Canadian guest in the history of this podcast, Rob Paul, Sports Drink, formerly Armchair All-Americans Draft Guy, co-host of the podcast Seven Rounds in Heaven. This has to be close to your time in terms of heaven on earth, right? We're two days away from the draft. How are you, my friend? I am exhausted, and I can't wait for this all to be over with. <laughs> I feel you. But then I think you told me last time pretty quickly, it, uh, I mean, the draft happens, and then it's the 2023 prospects pretty quickly after that, isn't it? Yeah, especially when you're coming off a quarterback class like this one that's not overly exciting, and you know the next one's actually pretty good. Uh, I probably won't wait past May to get into this next class. Wow. So that's, a, that's probably a good place to start. You explained to us, you, we had you on last year, probably around the same time. I guess the draft was a little bit later, and you kind of explained to us your process and kind of everything that goes up from, you know, starting to evaluate a class up until a draft class. I know we were talking a little bit off air um, about like where you're at right now. And you mentioned kind of just slotting some different things and kind of you know, dotting some I's, crossing some T's. Take me up wherever you want to start up until now, how you evaluate a class, put together a big board, and then kind of finalize everything going into a draft. So usually I really get into the nitty gritty uh, over the summer leading into the college football season, I like to go kind of make a list of the hot names in each conference. And I go like conference by conference. And usually I start uh, at the FCS and below level. And then I slowly work my way up and finish with the SEC uh, prior to week zero. And, and then, so I kind of have by, by week zero, I'll have 200 ish or so on the board. And it's not, obviously it's not final grades or anything. It's just more of almost like a guide for myself to know who to be watching. And then obviously through the season uh, of watching college football on Saturdays, I make note of new names that pop up or if a guy's clearly making a big leap, Kenny Pickett this year, for example, you kind of note that. And then it's almost like um, the, the, the tape grinding process for me, it's, it starts in the summer and then through the season, it's not a ton and then it's once the college football season wraps up, let's say January-ish, I re-go back through everyone and, and you try to get at least probably three games for each guy. And then obviously you get the combine and you get the pro days. And those, those, those numbers don't necessarily um, impact your board massively, but it, it's kind of like a check mark to ensure a guy reaches a specific threshold and if he doesn't, why didn't he? Let's revisit the tape. Or if he exceeds expectation, why'd that happen? Does that show up on tape? Let's revisit the tape. And then really the, the last couple weeks post, uh, post-combine, post it's for me, it's going position by position now. And let's finalize the top 10, the top 20 at each position. And then finally, kind of this last week here, I'm, I'm finalizing the, the top 300 or so on my big board. Okay. 
And then we, one of the things I think I mentioned last time we had you on was I always appreciated. So we, I, we kind of like, I guess, intertwined or whatever through like internet feeds because I used to write for armchair with Andrew and all those guys back in the day. Like I mentioned now it's sports drink now. And like, I was never a huge draft guy just because admittedly I just didn't know much about the evaluation process. I obviously covered college football. I'm not completely like ignorant how it works, but in terms of evaluating people, I, I, I was pretty clueless on the process and used to put videos on Twitter um, that made it pretty easy to understand. And one of the things I appreciated about it was I think I asked you last time, like you're not, you don't necessarily have like the resources of like a McShay or whoever else you want to put in there. So you don't have like these databases. How uh, is the like a gathering film process kind of the same? Is it kind of just acquiring where you can get it? Has that changed at all? So, I mean, it, it's helped because like the, the draft Twitter, if you want to call it community has grown so much over the last couple of years. And, and there's a lot of people who, um, get their hands on the all 22 and they cut it up and, and they kind of, there's this like kind of communal database and it's you pay like a, a buck or whatever a month through Patreon. And so that, that's a really good resource that I use to get all 22 tape, but obviously that's limited in, in that, like they're not going to have every FCS guy. They're not going to have, they might not even have every SEC guy. So sometimes you just kind of have to uh, worst case scenario, work off broadcast tape. Um, which depending on the position, it, it, it can be easy. Like I'm not going to want to watch a corner off the broadcast tape because I can't see the corner, but I can get away with watching a tackle or a pass rusher, even a, a running back, a linebacker, those types of things. So, and th those are all cut up all over YouTube. So that's not very hard to get your hands on. So really it's, it's the, the process of just kind of hoping you can get the L22 for specific guys. It sucks that yeah. it isn't easy and that college football programs kind of, treat this stuff uh, like nobody needs to see it except NFL teams and, and the McShays of the world. But uh, it, it does help now that the, uh, the, the draft Twitter community is working so hard on it. Are you suggesting that college football programs might have an unfounded sense of paranoia? Maybe, who's to say? I don't know. The uh, jury might still be out on that one. <laughs> but, uh, and so I probably should ask you this at the start, and I think the story is interesting. Kind of tell everyone how you got started in this, because I think this is like a really interesting like, you know, you're a reporter, you do the sports thing, but like, this is an interesting area to land on. How did you kind of find a passion for the NFL draft and evaluation process, particularly being a Canadian guy? Because, you know, dumb American stereotypes, it's just hockey up there. How did you kind of fall in love with football and then the evaluation process? Well, it truly started by being a, a fat kid who couldn't skate. <laughs> and from there, it, it turned into me starting to play football on my own. And uh, really, it... it it was the, I think it was the Jamarcus Russell draft was when I started like kind of paying attention. Like I, I was watching the NFL, but the Jamarcus Russell draft and then into the, uh, the Jake Long draft, which I think was 08. Those two drafts were when I started kind of getting more into the, just the process. And that the, the drafts actually what ultimately got me more into the college into watching college football. And, um, from there, I just, for whatever reason, I kind of fell in love with the, the team building aspect. And uh, growing up playing football too, because we do have football in Canada. It's just we play with three downs for some reason. And oh, Ole Miss people sure. are aware from that. They're like Canada South with some of the college players they've gotten the last couple of years. Um, from Dean Leonard to um, – shoot, who am I leaving out? I'm leaving out someone on the defensive line. For some reason, can't, I can't remember his 
Chris Partridge or someone else, there was a small Canadian pipeline to the SIP for a while. We, we've uh, Canada's doing a better job now, kind of developing and sending kids to to prep schools in in, in your uh, in your country and, and getting them to to D one programs. But uh, yeah, so so kind of just playing, loving the NFL, loving playing football. That just kind of all mashed together, and just for whatever reason, being obsessed with the draft. I really enjoyed the combine. I always loved watching uh, Mike Mayock and Rich Eisen on NFL Network. And like that all like just came together to my obsession. And then over the years, I've just grown. And when, did, at what point did you, like, how does one get started? Cause I remember I just started like writing for a student newspaper. They paid me like 15 bucks an article, which like in college, that was pretty sweet. I could go out to the bars, not uh, like it was like, yeah, whatever. I'll keep writing. This doesn't take me that much time. How did you kind of find your in and find your niche? Because, you know, it's one thing to do the writing part of it. But, like, you have to actually figure out how to evaluate dudes. If I was wrong, nobody gives a shit. Like, it's just kind of the next day is for day-to-day stuff. You have to actually learn how to evaluate prospects. How did you kind of get the hang of that? And did you did you emulate anyone, if that makes sense? A lot of reading. Um, a, a lot of reading. And, it, it, it honestly, Bill Belichick's dad, Steve Belichick, wrote this book uh, that kind of helps you understand the in and outs of scouting. I got my hands on that when I was, like, 16. So that helped a huge amount. And then from there, it's just like, I like reading about the draft too. Um, I, I don't have a big enough ego to, to think, oh, I know everything and, sure. and I can't read other people. So like guys like Dane Brugler at The Athletic, I've been reading his stuff for years. Um, I, I appreciate Daniel Jeremiah at NFL Network, Mike Mayock, as I mentioned before, like can, just consuming a bunch of, of draft stuff. And then really Twitter has been a, a huge for that too. Cause there's so many people on Twitter putting good content out that helps you understand um, how to scout for specific positions. Like, again, when you're scouting for me, I, I'm watching every guy at every position. I'm not, I, I don't think I'm amazing at any of it. I, I certainly am going to miss on players constantly, especially when you're watching so many guys. So all you can do is, is kind of have an open mind and, and learn to trust the right people who know what they're talking about. And then through them, you can, yourself kind of learn what you're talking about like a, a really great guy right now is actually Deontay Lee at the athletic he's he I think is one of the best in the biz and he he's someone I go to or Ben Fennell who uh he does stuff for the athletic and for NFL network I think and, and like guys like that are just putting clips out all the time and kind of like breaking it down and, and it really helps you get a better under, understanding of what you're looking for and then also like when you're watching college players you want to know what an NFL player looks like right so you have to take the time to like actually scout the pros to 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 watch a uh i don't know a, a justin herbert and be like this is what a quarterback should look like or or to watch uh uh a quentin nelson that's what an all pro guard looks like and, and kind of looking for that those traits in in these prospects that makes sense tavius robinson defensive line was the other one i was missing i know it was blanket on the second canadian that was an old miss rebel um, there's probably a story to be done on why a couple of Canadians over the last couple of years have gone down there. So let's get into this class a little bit. It's always interesting to me to see how all of this evolves because you guys that are in draft media, like do it year round. Like you mentioned, you just outlined your process. What's always hilarious to me is I would say, I know the NFL has scouting departments and they're very extensive and guys are going, I mean, I was at college practices. If you have a good team, there's dudes there every day in and out, but the higher up guys, it seems like don't necessarily seem to get familiar with some of these prospects until after the college football season. And so the way some of these 
I would call them TV draft storylines kind of evolve over the last couple of months is always kind of humorous to me just because it seems like a lot of the bigger guys that are involved in actual teams are playing catch up a little bit. And so I thought at first, maybe let's start with quarterbacks because obviously Ole Miss has a quarterback, Matt Corral, that, you know, maybe he goes first round. I don't know. I think maybe locally, you know, it's their guy. I think a lot of people are, are miffed that he's behind, you know, maybe three, four quarterbacks um, at certain points. But overall, as a class, this was billed as a weak quarterback draft class. And I thought maybe that would change because, I mean, every year, even that EJ Manuel class a couple of years ago, it feels like these teams like talk themselves into taking a run right. on them higher from everything I've read. And even just like in the last couple of hours prepping for this podcast, it doesn't sound like there's going to be this last minute run where, you know, three quarterbacks are taken in the top 16 just because it may end up happening, but normally there's more buzz about it right now. How do you kind of read that? And why do you view this? Or I say you, why do you think it's collectively viewed as a weaker draft class? So I think, I think there's two reasons that um, there's some uncertainty over one, who, which quarterbacks will go first round and two, how many. And I, a part of it is I, it, it is a weaker class and I don't think there's any clear cut uh, first round quarterback in this class. And, and because of that, other guys are getting pushed up. And I, I think, I mean, using last year's class as an example where we have five first round quarterbacks, uh, I, I think all five of those quarterbacks are, are better prospects than every quarterback in this class. And, and I, but like, I'm, I'm fairly confident in that. And so the combination of it being a weaker class and then quarterback playing the NFL is better than ever right now. There's not a lot of teams that are absolutely desperate for a quarterback. And because of that, like even, even the teams picking in the top 10, um, like, I mean, Jacksonville's got the number one pick. They just drafted Trevor Lawrence. Right. And, and, and in Detroit, it seems like they're playing the long game and then they're probably going to wait and hold out for a Bryce Young or a CJ Stroud next year. The Texans are feeling comfortable with Davis Mills, at least comfortable enough that, that they too will hope to, to hold out for a, a better prospect next year. So I think, and then as you go through it, there's just not a lot of clear landing spots and there's not a lot of clear fits. So those two things are kind of working together. And, and on top of it all, it's just not a weak class overall. It's not just the quarterbacks. It's the entire class isn't, isn't great. There's, I don't think there's a, a, a truly elite, obvious guy who should go number one. Um, and I think that's why we've lately seen more debate over who the Jaguars could take. Um, so I think all those kind of factors work together and that's why no one's certain who the first quarterback off the board will be or how many will go, but the NFL likes to get desperate. And I kind of feel as if draft night, someone's going to pull trigger. Maybe it won't be in the top 10, but someone's going to pull trigger on a quarterback in the top 15, let's say, and that could lead other teams to start panicking and feel, Oh my God, Malik Willis just went off the board. We have to go get Matt Corral now, or we're going to miss out on, on a quarterback. Because I, I kind of feel that a lot of these franchises are hoping some of these guys fall to the second round, and that just that just doesn't seem like a a, a smart game plan. If, if you like one of these quarterbacks, you should go take one. And if you're if you're willing to take one in the second round, well, in today's NFL, you you kind of have to. If if you think a second round guy is going to be a franchise guy, you should take him in the first round. That's I I wouldn't do it, but I, that's how I feel about the quarterback uh, drafting process. I think it's a great point you make, particularly regarding 
like the lack of desperation amongst bad teams. So you need to get a quarterback because it's kind of rare in that sense. Normally there's three, four teams in the top six or seven to where it's like they could either really use one or maybe they were bad the year before and got one to where it's now, like you mentioned with Detroit, like, yeah, they're playing the long game. Like, whatever you think of Jared Goff, at least he's played – he's a serviceable NFL quarterback, right? Like, I mean, he's probably on the – definitely probably on the lower end of starters, but they're not completely devoid there. And even you could see it – like, I was interested in, like, the Baker Mayfield storyline in wake of the Deshaun Watson thing, and you were just doing the musical chairs game, and it was kind of like, well, like, you know, Baker Mayfield's probably one of the top 32 quarterbacks in the NFL – and it felt like Seattle, maybe Carolina, or that's kind of it. And that's a guy that's an already kind of a known commodity in the league. There really is a unique year in the sense that there's just not a ton of teams completely desperate for a quarterback. The Texans in a normal, like, like normally probably would have been, but you're right. Davis Mills played so well down the stretch of last year. They don't have to take a chance on a prospect. They can wait till next year and kind of take the more surefire guy. And then the rest of it kind of feels like teams that would take one to press the, you know, five out of 10 guy they have in front of them. Like I'm thinking, I don't think the Giants will, but if they just got frisky and are like, all right, let's push Daniel Jones a little bit, or even towards the back half to where it's like, you know, Seattle kind of throw him in there with Drew Locke, New Orleans, just take a chance on a kid. Most of those are in the back half of the first round. We'll go two-parter here. What's, uh, who is your number one quarterback, and where do you see the first quarterback going? So my number one quarterback has been Malik Willis basically the whole ride, and I don't have a first-round grade on Malik Willis, but he is the only quarterback in this class that I think has the physical tools where if everything else comes together, it makes sense for him to be a first-round pick. Um, Obviously, the everything else is a big if, and we've only really seen a quarterback as raw as him with the tools he has make that leap once in recent memory, and that was that was Josh Allen. And, and, and Josh Allen landed in a spot that had a really strong uh, foundation in terms of head coach GM continuity and, and a team that understood roster building and had an offensive coordinator who is now the Giants head coach. Like, they just had a lot of – good things there. And that's kind of why Josh Allen, I think, was able to make that leap. Um, so I, I think Malik Willis's arm talent is the best in the class. He, he's also the best athlete. Um, he at times has shown the best deep ball placement. Um, so I think a team sells themselves on, on being able to kind of bring him along uh, and, and get everything else to click. And the problem is in, in, in Ole Miss country knows about Hugh Freeze, obviously. Yeah. And uh, the offense Hugh Freeze runs at Liberty is is not very complex. And it's it's very much just kind of these one-read layup throws and then a lot of quarterback run and mixing in a deep shot every once in a while. So the, the thing with Malik Willis is you, you're going to have to bring him along slowly in terms of uh, finding an offense that, that – uh, or developing him in a pro-style pro offense – and teaching him how to kind of work through his progressions and make full read throws or full field read, sorry. Um, and, and so those are big ifs, but I, I, I believe in the right situation. If he can sit a year, maybe even two, he's got everything else you want. So I, 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 can, I can buy selling yourself on him as a first-round um, uh, first pick. Now, like if Carolina takes him, I don't have a lot of hope for him. But let's say, let's say it's uh, the Saints, the Saints at six. Like that feels like a really good match. He's not going to be forced to play right away. They got Jameis coming back. 
Um, they've got, I know Dennis Allen's now the head coach, but the, the rest of the, the Dennis Allen and the rest of the coaching staff have been there for years under Sean Payton. GM Mickey Loomis has been there for years. There's, there's foundation with that team. So I think that would be a great fit. Now, do I, do I think he falls that far? It's hard to say because Seattle, Seattle will be another good place because obviously Pete Carroll and, and John Schneider have been there for years too. Um, I just don't know that like it, it feels as if he'd be forced to play right away if he if he landed there. Um, it's it's such an uncertain draft that I'm not confident where he goes. I think his best case is 16 to the Saints uh, or 20 to the Steelers, um, but it's just so hard to say right now in this class. There's a there was a lot of like Steelers buzz. It seemed like Mike Tomlin was kind of had his eye on him at whether it's pro day or combine or what have you. But I do think it's interesting in that standpoint. And Ole Miss actually played Liberty this year um, in an early November game. That uh, honestly, it was more about the coach storyline for reasons that don't have anything to do with anything good. Um, but I was actually it was 11 a.m. game. I was actually pretty impressed with Willis. And from everything I've read, you mentioned when you're kind of taking. I don't know if taking a chance is the right way to put it, but a guy that's not a surefire come in day one and be the face of your franchise. I think having the, like if it's a project, having the right mindset and everything I read seems like he, you know, he got a high score on the wonder Wick. I saw that came out today. He seemed to have impressed teams, I guess, kind of in the interview room part of it. And that seems to translate because that was, to be honest, that was the only Liberty game I watched this year, but that kid got the crap knocked out of him over and over again. It kept getting up and made some pretty big throws in the second half and they made that game competitive to where, like, I've seen guys in the past, there have only been a couple that have come through as quarterback prospects on, a like, a weaker team, whether it's FCS or lower-level lower FBS, come in and take a couple hits and be like, to hell with this, I'm out. Like, he just kept getting back up, and I was kind of impressed with that part of it. So it seems like he's got all of that as well, which probably want with the guy, um, you know, like you mentioned, who's not a surefire first-round guy. After Willis, how do you see it? And how many do you think you go in the first round? Just best so, yet. So uh, I, I think Will, Willis is the guy you, you take the home run swing on because he's got the tools. He, he's not a safe bet, but if he hits, he's got by far the most upside. He, he I think, is the guy in this class who uh, a GM and coaching staff could sell themselves on turning into a, a top 10 quarterback, let's say. Uh, the safe bet, in my mind, is Desmond Ritter from Cincinnati. Um and he's another guy. The steel. This I'm a Steelers fan, so I've been paying heavy attention to who are, who are whining and dining, and they've wined wined and dined the top five quarterbacks. But to me, I, I think it, it sounds like it's going to be Willis or Ritter. Um, so Ritter Ritter's the guy who just beautiful mechanics, really clean feet, just a, per, a perfect throwing stroke. Um, played a lot of college football. Uh, won a lot. Good athlete good arm, and um, maybe, maybe most importantly, he's the guy who came into the closest thing to an NFL offense, pro-style pro style offense. He, he, the Cincinnati ran like uh, pretty much a West Coast offense, and um, he, he was under center. He, he's worked play action. He's, uh, he's the kind of the only guy in this class, really, who makes full, full field reads and like can get to his second, to his third progression, and makes that right decision. He doesn't put the ball in conflict very often. The one thing holding him back is his accuracy is a little sporadic. And, and history says you can't really fix something like that. Um, now, he has a tendency through a game to kind of 
get better as the game goes on, which is funny because every everything basically since the moment he got at Cincinnati, uh, uh, he started as a redshirt freshman, and each year he got better, and kind of each game through the season he gets better, and even even each three quarter he gets better, and he was at the Senior Bowl too, and he day one of the Senior Bowl, Willis was there as well. Um, day one of the senior bowl, he was horrific. By day three of practice, he was the best quarterback there. And so all of that, and he, from what I've heard, is one of those kind of insanely competitive SOBs. He, he's got the mental makeup, kind of like what you were saying with Malik Willis. Both of them seem like they've got the character and the mental makeup checkmark you want out of your quarterback. So to me, he, he's the safe bet. And if he lands with a team like Pittsburgh, let's say, or the Saints, like, I, I wouldn't be shocked if he's starting uh, maybe halfway through the year. He's the only quarterback who I think could start week one in the NFL and not look like a complete mess. Interesting. I, I was impressed with him throughout the year, and obviously you mentioned he won a lot and played a lot of college football. You mentioned the mindset part of it, and that's probably a decent enough segue into Matt Corral. How do you see that? Because I don't think Matt Corral's last year – did him any favors from a draft standpoint and some people listening might think that's kind of crazy but they were so bad at receiver around him he had iffy protection at times and they had to run him a lot like I, I saw a draft guide the other day like put together a couple of side-by-side throws of him against Auburn and LSU and like this LSU game was six days after he carried the football 27 times which was not by design it was out of necessity you know, messed up his ankle the first time, about six and a half days rest. And the second one was literally after he lit back onto the field after turning it again against Auburn, where you had the, like, famous Lane Kiffin looking like he was on the ground either crying or praying. Because, honestly, when I saw it, I thought he was probably done for the year. Like, you got the toughness aspect of it there, but I'm not sure, like, how much from an NFL standpoint, like, was seen from him because of the receiver dysfunction everything else around him. That's not to say he's perfect. Look at Corral in 2020, the six-interception game against Arkansas. Dude was a gunslinger for the first half bit. So wherever you want to go with it, how do you kind of see him as a prospect? So he's, he's interesting because, obviously, the arm talent's there. He's a good athlete. They ran the hell out of him. He, he ran a lot. Um, he, he's got this kind of moxie, this swagger about him that I think can turn some people off, but I, I mean, I think a lot of people do appreciate that too. You want your quarterback to kind of ha- have have a certain attitude about him. Um, what what really kills me with him is Lane Kiffin. I don't think trusted him very much. They ran RPOs so frequently, and on big money downs, it was they they would run quarterback designed runs. And, and Lane Kiffin, Lane Kiffin. I mean, going back to Alabama, he kind of builds his offense around his playmakers. He, he's not uh, like as someone who, who has a specific type of offense that these guys must run. He'll build it around them. And I mean, look at Elijah Moore last year. They force fed him um, because he was the best player on the field. And uh, so this year it was a lot of RPOs, a lot of quarterback run. Um, and, and to your point, like they, they were without Elijah Moore this year. They were without Kenny Yaboa. They didn't have the same playmakers. The offensive line wasn't as good. Um, and, and so that, that kind of makes you raise an eyebrow. Like why, why weren't they putting more on Corral? Um, but then you also think arm talent, he has a wonderfully quick release. He was so good at the RPO game because his release is so fast. Um, and, but I think what really is the, the thing that ultimately holds you back the most is decision-making like he, he, he'll, 
he'll throw a lot of YOLO balls. He'll trust his arm more than he should. Um, he's also his lower half. He, he is sloppy. Like he, his feet are pointing the wrong way. He, he, he doesn't seem to um, use his lower body mechanically like at all. It, it's super strange. It actually reminds me a little bit of Drew Locke coming out of Missouri. Um, and so Corral's a huge upside guy because similar, not to the same degree as Willis, but similar to Willis, he's got the, these tools that you can't teach, but the stuff you have to teach, he's so far behind on. Can, can he land in a spot that has the right infrastructure to kind of make him what he, he, his, his ceiling says he can be. Um, and that's why really with quarterbacks in general, like obviously all these guys are talented. I think uh, the, the top five quarterbacks all have the tools to be NFL starters um, and landing spot is everything for these guys. I mean, look at, look at Justin Fields. Chicago is probably going to run his, his um, talent into the ground because they have not surrounded him with anything. And they, they've done just a, horrific job of building that team around him and that that I mean ask anyone last year he's a top five prospect so it's like so much of it for these quarterbacks is where they land and how this team is built around them I'd heard the the footwork part of it as well like just from talking to people throughout the year and just kind of like you mentioned just reading like kind of what people say about him I think some of the uh trust factor like I would say fell some on the receiving core because man, Lane Kiffin had some absolutely incredible quotes about the receiving core, not in a good way after some of his games. And like their only real option, the guy they were trying to hope to step up, Jonathan Mingo breaks his foot against Alabama and never really comes back to save. So like, I wonder how much of it was just the fact that it was like, I don't know who the hell he's throwing to. I remember looking up at one point during the Auburn game when they had lost Ontario Drummond and they had a guy out there to where I was like, I don't know who this is. I, uh, I'm going to have to go look up the roster. Like I literally have no clue I'm supposed to know. And so I wonder like how much of the trust factor was one, the 2020 season, and then two, um, the receiver part of it. And I finally kind of, I kind of find that part of it fascinating. As far as like the footwork with Corral, you mentioned there's like things you can coach things you can Footwork is a coachable one, but on a scale of like picking it up quickly, how is that like, is that something you found that guys pick up quicker? Or is it kind of prospect to prospect thing? I, I think it's prospect to prospect because again, so much of it is how much time these guys are going to commit. And then a lot of it too is landing spot. Are, are they going to be like, is Matt Crowell going to land in a spot where it's, it's a terrible situation? Let's say Washington takes them and, and Carson Wentz gets hurt week three. Like is Matt Crowell going to have to play that early? And then just get destroyed and have his confidence shook. And because again, once your confidence is shook as a as an NFL starting quarterback, like it, that's a hard thing to get back. And your development, like you can do everything you want to fix mechanics, but when the bullets are live, will those stay? And that's a muscle memory thing. And to kind of correct that, you need time away from the live bullets to correct that and, and turn turn the new mechanics into the muscle memory. The biggest hang-up I have with some of the draft stuff with Corral, like I had a about three months ago, I had a scout from an NFL team um, call me, and that doesn't happen very often. Most, of it, I would say, it's happened a couple of times since I started doing it. Most of it is based like them finding like an article or something, like something more in depth I wrote about a guy where I clearly like interviewed him outside of like a normal setting. It's usually when that happens, and it wasn't even about Corral. And then about 10 minutes in the conversation, he asked me about Corral, and he was like, well, what have you heard about 
the off the field stuff. And that's the part that always is like the disconnect to me. He has the high school thing where whatever he beat up Wayne Gretzky's kid from what I've told. And look, is probably someone that had reason to say this, that it was a little bit exaggerated. And I think they kind of tried to uh, be a little bit spiteful. I would say typical high school stuff. And then I don't know. I don't pretend to know what like, you know, what his social life was like early on in college. But what I do know, the last two years that guy was quarterback pretty much from Lane Kiffin got there. He was up at 5 a.m. in the building pretty much every single day from, you know, by all accounts, I don't even think the dude drinks anymore. One of the ways the scout phrased it to me is like, what do you think about like his partying problem? I was like, dude, I don't think that guy's drank in two years. Now, earlier in his career, I have no idea. If Rich Rodriguez and Phil Longo were my offensive coordinators, I'd probably be a fifth of whiskey a night just from the stress of having to deal with something like that. Just from everything you've gathered, how do you kind of see the leadership aspect for him? Because I think for Ole Miss people, they saw him kind of be the heart and soul of a football team and carry what was probably about a six and six roster to a 10 and two year. What is your kind of read on that aspect of it? So one of the things I absolutely hate the most about being in the world I am in is uh, the, the, the guys who get tabbed with this character concern thing. And, and Kayvon Thibodeau is a great example of this too. Yeah. Um, where it's, there, there's an anonymous scout or whoever says it, it gets out there and everyone runs with it. And most of the people who, who bring it up don't actually know what it is. And they'll just say, well, he has the off field or the character and they don't know anything about that. And, uh, I mean, if, if, if we're all still worried about Matt Corral beating up Wayne Gretzky's son, like, I, I mean, what are we doing here? Like, if, do you really think when Matt Corral's an NFL quarterback, the fact that he, he might've gotten a fight at 16, does that matter to me? It doesn't. And uh, I get that NFL teams have to do their due diligence. Sure. So it's, it's, it's less of being like, why, why is the NFL do this? And it's more, why does the media run with this stuff? It's so, it's so annoying. And like, I, I've been so upset with the Kayvon Thibodeau one specifically this whole time, because he doesn't have a character concern. The guy just it's like the adult of football thing, right? I read that he loves, so I read something the other day. It was like, he loves crypto. And I was like, who cares? Like, yeah, I mean, honestly, you, you, if if your love's off the field doesn't impact your play on the field, who cares? Man, that's kind of the way I look at it. As long as you're not doing anything heinous, doesn't matter to me. And um, I think the the funniest thing with with for Matt Corral is, I think each class, the the media is obsessed with who's the Johnny Manziel of this class, and now they don't yeah. say it. But it's it's always because Baker Mayfield had this tag too is like the character concerns and despite maybe him not being the franchise number one pick that we all thought he might be like the the fact that it's always like a sub six two quarterback who's really fun has a big arm runs around a lot and they always seem to get tabbed with this like party character concerns thing and I swear to God it's because Johnny Manziel. I think you might be onto something there. It's almost like who's the guy that's not always going to like say absolutely nothing in a press conference and might kind of spout off a little bit. And it's almost like looking for the celebrity storyline in an industry that's, you know, I would say pretty anti-distraction in a lot of different senses for better or for worse. The part that kills me about that is, is like, and I'm sure some of this is rooted in it, but like I'd be more concerned about like, like the way that it seems like these franchises lose money is when you show up, like when you draft a guy and then you figure out six weeks in, like, 
oh, this guy shows up, you know, right on time to everything and is first one out of the building. Like the commitment to actually putting in football versus getting in a fight at 16. I'd almost actually want a little street fight in a guy. Um, so I'm curious to see like how that ends up affecting and corral and where he goes. Last one before we get into a couple other things. Uh, Kenny Pickett, guy that kind of came on late. Um, I watched a couple pit games this year. They were on the nice Thursday night game. Maybe some vested interest in some of the ACC football at times. What uh, what do you kind of see with Pickett? Because you mentioned Ritter being kind of your safest bet. That's what I've always like. I'm from that seems to be the consensus with Pickett, where it's like highest floor, lowest ceiling, or whatever this whatever it is. I might have had that backwards. How do you view Pickett? So I think the thing that's really helped Pickett is the fact that Joe Burrow had uh, just a fine year at LSU before having one of the greatest college football seasons anyone's ever seen. So, so Kenny Pickett had three mediocre starting years at Pitt before throwing 42 touchdowns this year. And Pitt, Pitt won the ACC, and that's not something Pitt does. Pitt doesn't even normally score that many points. Uh, so there was a lot of hype through the year. Um, as Pickett put up numbers. Um, and he kind of got tagged with this, yeah, safe bet label, um, which has always been kind of funny to me because uh, although the offense he is coming out that Mark Whipple ran at Pitt, the offense they ran was closer to, to what you'll see in the NFL than, than a guy like Corral or a guy like Sam Howell or Malik Willis. Um, Desmond Ritter was in an offense far closer to a to an NFL pro style, like West Coast style. Um, so the, I, I always thought that was funny that Pickett got that label. And especially as you dig into the tape, Pickett is very much a guy who, if his first read isn't there, he is he's running. He's maybe not running, running, but he's, he's scrambling. He's trying to make a play. And, and that can be good. But when you've got a clean pocket, your first read's not there, you got to get to your second read. And that's kind of the hang-up for me with him is he, he doesn't really get through his reads and he does kind of look to make a play over um, taking, taking what's given, which that's not going to work in the NFL. He's not athletic enough to make that work in the NFL. And he doesn't have a great arm. He has a, he's enough arm, but he doesn't have a great arm. And, and he, 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 he's like almost average at everything. And I think because of that, he's gotten this like safe bet label. And now I think in most years, he's a third-round pick. And this year, he might go sixth overall to Carolina. He, he to me, if everything clicks right, he can become Andy Dalton, um, which some people might be okay with that in the first round. Uh, I, I myself wouldn't be because I think you should only take quarterbacks in the first round you think are a Super Bowl caliber winning quarterback. Um, but, yeah, that, that's always been the kind of strange thing with Pickett. And I think a lot of the big media – had, like Daniel Jeremiah, for example, has, has had him kind of be the quarterback one throughout the whole process. Uh, and, and because of that, it's kind of propped him up more than it should. Who's the best, uh, who's the best player on your board? Just prospect. Uh, Ika McQuanu from NC State. So and that's, do you, you think he's going number one overall to Jacksonville? No, I don't, but uh, I would do it if I was Trent Balky and Doug Peterson because I, I don't think you'll find a, a run blocker as devastating as him or, or as freakishly twitchy as him or as powerful as him. Um, Icky and Evan Neal, the Alabama left tackle, to me those are the two best players in this class. And I think Evan Neal's the safe bet, and I would take him number one too if, if I was looking for a safer bet. I think Icky's got more upside. Don't think you can go wrong with either one. It sounds like their conversation's more between Aiden Hutchinson and Trevon Walker, though. 
How can it – how – I mean, I get it. NFL GMs doesn't seem like Trent Valky's approval rating is very high, to say the least. But I was about to just ask almost a rhetorical question. Like, I don't understand how you could watch what happened to Trevor Lawrence last year and then go defense. Like, I get they have some holes to fill on that side of the ball, but, like, I would get to get some protection. So, you think they're going to end up going defense, huh? Yeah, so – I think because they, they, they franchise tag Cam Robinson, their left tackle, they signed Brandon Scherf from, from Washington. Like they feel okay enough about their offensive line that they're, they're looking more for a, a premier pass rusher, which I, I, in most classes I'd be okay with. Sure. I, I just don't think – I think in most classes Aiden Hutchinson's not a number one pick. I think in most classes Trevon Walker's not a number one pick. Um, Icky and Evan Neal, to me, they, they give you either uh, a, a guy – either one can plug and play at guard if you want to ride this last year out with Cam Robinson on the franchise tag before shifting the left tackle. Um, I think both have all pro upside. And I think at the end of the day, you already said it, the most important thing on that roster is Trevor Lawrence. Let's protect Trevor Lawrence. Let's build this thing around Trevor Lawrence before we start to, to worry about which pass rusher can play opposite Josh Allen. Um, I, I just – I don't understand. Like, you're, hopefully if you're Jacksonville, you don't think you'll have the number one pick again. So, let's go get an all-pro left tackle. Hutchinson, Thibodeau, Walker, how do you kind of see the three? And just – I know, again, they're not the same position exactly, but, like, just player-wise, how do you kind of see those three and what order do you think they go in terms of, like, who out of the three is drafted first? So, I think – so, I got all three in, in top ten on my board. Um, I, I have Kayvon Thibodeau, uh, one – Travon Walker two, and I've gone back and forth with that. And then I have Aiden Hutchinson three. I I, I don't think Aiden Hutchinson's this uh, kind of prospect that he's been pegged as, um, but he he's he because he put up the numbers because Michigan made the playoff because all these things he's kind of had all this steam behind him, uh, and, and because it's a weak class he very well could go number one. Um, I think Thibodeau's got the most All Pro uh, high upside ceiling because. You can't – like, his first step and his bend are unbelievable. He He's going to provide instant pass rush. I think Travon Walker's got the ability to be one of, if not the best run defenders in the NFL. Uh, and Hutchinson, I think, is going to be a really safe player and, and, and a good player for a long time. I just don't think he, he – he's he's not a dominant run defender, and he's I don't think he's ever going to be a consistent 12-sack guy. Do you subscribe to the theory that Thibodeau would have a little more buzz if he weren't a Pac-12 guy? Because that seems to be something that kind of gets talked about in the last couple of draft classes. Look, he was not hidden in Oregon by any sense. I don't mean to insinuate that. But, like, you think if you saw him, like, if there was, like, tape of him in the Southeastern Conference or something, do you think that would change anything? It's, it's hard to say. Like, I do think – you, you'd like to think that wouldn't impact things. Sure. But I think ultimately it does, right? Like I just said that how Aiden Hutchinson's kind of being propped up a little more because Michigan made the playoff. And I, I think that's true. And so I think it's hard to remove biases and, and things like that from the entire process. And anyone who says they, they can is probably lying a little bit. Um, so I do think, like, if Kate wants to go play for Alabama, I, I think there'd be a lot better chance he'd be going number one on, on Thursday. What uh the receiver class is interesting because that it seems like and I'm honestly I don't know because Ole Miss doesn't have one and so I really don't know. I mean I've seen, obviously I saw Williamson up close I guess twice at least. 
Um, but outside of that, it seems like it's a fairly sturdy, solid class that seems to be impacting the free agent market a little bit where you're now kind of seeing this push of guys wanting to be the next highest paid guy, which I find kind of a fascinating subplot. How do you see the receivers? Because from what it sounds like is a decent class, there's actually not a ton of receiver need in like the top 10. So how do you kind of see that shaking out? Who's your best receiver? So uh, I, I think we're going to have a run on receivers. I think we, we could honestly have like eight wide receivers taken. Um, and, and it's a really – I love evaluating wide receivers, and I think this is a really fun class because there's a lot of different flavors with this class. Um, so my, my number one's been Garrett Wilson from Ohio State throughout the whole process. Uh, but it, it's almost like you, you could pretty much bring like the top six guys – to the table in almost any order. And I think there's an argument to have it like, and, and so it's hard to, to be like, no, Drake London shouldn't be the wide receiver one. Well, I mean, he's six, four, he unbelievable contested catch guy who forced more, I think more missed tackles than anyone in college football this season. So the, the, there's so many different arguments to have. Um, I, I think for me, the reason Garrett Wilson is my top guy is, his ability with the ball in his hands and his route running upside because nothing creates uh, separation like route running in the NFL. Um, and he's just so explosive in and out of his breaks. So he's my number one guy, but like Chris Olave can stretch the field and he is the most efficient route runner. Jamison Williams is just all, all world deep threat type. Um, and uh, Traylon Burks, I mean, how many 225 pound wide receivers are out running the whole Alabama defense and, and like I said Drake one and John Dotson probably has the best hands in this class for Penn State uh, Christian Watson of North Dakota State he's just a freak show with so much upside that if you can develop that he 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 could be unstoppable and even Sky Moore from West Western Michigan I think he could he could sneak into the first round because he's like a, a golden Tate type of uh, yak receiver with the ball in his hands yeah, the receiver is cross is interesting because I saw like I saw Burt got knocked a little bit for his 40 time, but man, when that guy with the pads on, like it's how hard is that to evaluate receivers? Because I get like the 40 time is the 40 time, but I didn't see that guy having any problem leaving people in the dust at Arkansas, and they used him in a lot of different ways. I was really impressed by him. I thought he was the best receiver in the SEC. Um, but how like when you're evaluating receivers, how do you kind of evaluate like 40 time and the measurables part of it? versus like what they're doing in games this could be dubbed the dk metcalf debate or whatever but like how do you kind of factor both of those in so it, it really depends so if if jameson williams ran a four five five i'd probably be a little worried but that's not Traylon burks's game Traylon burks's game was never the 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 deep shot type like can he do it yeah because he's a great contested catch guy he has unbelievable body control really strong hands but what he does best is get the ball in his hands and let him use that 225-pound frame to break arm tackles, to, to create plays after the catch. Um, they, they used him. Sam Pittman, it, 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 what he's done in Arkansas has been really fun. He, 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 he allowed uh, kind of Traylon Burks to be this hybrid. They, they line him up in the backfield. They put him in motion constantly. He'd be this jumbo slot receiver. They let him play X. Like, they were really creative getting him the ball. And, and I think if he had run four, four, nine, like, which I mean, four, five, five, four, four, nine, like they're not that different sure. uh, it, it, when you're not a speed receiver. Like, I don't think the, there would be nearly as much pushback. Um, 
I think part of the problem was Burks was hyped to test really well for his size. And then he tested fine. Like he didn't test that poorly. Um, and so I think a lot of people just kind of overcorrected. Uh, he, if he falls out of the first round, that seems wild. Um, a, a good example of uh, who he reminds me of is AJ Brown. And obviously you're familiar with AJ Brown. Yeah. AJ Brown ran a four, four, nine. AJ Brown was a big body receiver. And I, I think the only, for me, the, the bigger concern with Burks is it's, it's not the athleticism. It's more like the route tree and, and they didn't have him run a lot of routes there. And it was a lot of kind of um, goes slants and, and screens, which AJ Brown was the same thing coming out of Old Miss and that's turned out just fine. So I think as long as Traylon Burks gets to a situation where they know what he is, he's going to, he's going to quickly become a, a, an impact player in the NFL. Yeah, you're right. You're dead on with that. And the Brown part of it is funny because I remember one time the Phil Longo offense, he like, I remember he came in and like he bragged about having like 12 plays or something at one point. I was like, I don't think that's a good thing, man. Like this is not Sam Houston state. And then DK Metcalf scored a touchdown. On, they were playing some small school. I was like, what was that route? He's like, that's called get open. It's like, I don't think that's going to translate well to next next level. The route tree is always kind of an underrated like concept in pro, in uh, college and how it translates to the pros. But I wanted to get into a couple of parts of like what teams are or you think teams are going to do. But the last thing, there's defensive guys littered across the first round from Georgia. Clearly, they had one of the best college defenses I've ever seen. I'm not old enough to make the whole they're the best defense I've ever seen. But between that and a couple of those, like the 2011 Alabama LSU had some dudes. But one of the guys that I see going later, and I can see why, and like the reading makes sense, is N'Kobe Dean, Horn Lake, Mississippi kid. Kind of the end of the Matt Luke era, I'd say, when the Georgia came in with the bag at the last minute and he ended up in Athens instead of Oxford. In terms of like holy shit factor, when watching him on the field at times, that was a guy that always stuck out to me. But he's not necessarily, I guess, as high as I would have thought he was, say, in, like, December in terms of draft boards. How do you see him as a prospect? I think he probably goes in the first round, maybe. But what, uh, what's kind of your read on him? So I absolutely love N'Kobe Dean. And when he probably falls to the second round for some stupid reason. That would be nuts. I have him uh, – so he, Devin Lloyd's being the linebacker kind of touted as the, t- the top ten player in this class from the linebacker group. But I have N'Kobe Dean over him. Dean's uh, 18th on my board right now. What, what's worked against him is he's 5'11". He's 229, so he's smaller. And he didn't test. Like, he didn't test at the combine, didn't test at the pro day. And so because of that, it seems like people – people again, kind of overcorrected. They're like, well, if he didn't test, he can't be athletic. Throw on the tape. He has ridiculous range. Throw on the tape. And he, I think, uh, of the Georgia, like, there's, again, littered with first-round talent on that Georgia defense. He's the most d- disruptive player on that defense. And, and we get a guy in that defense who could go number one to Jacksonville. Um, Nicobe Dean's ability to both diagnose, pull trigger, and, and, and get downhill and blow shit up is is phenomenal. And he can play on passing downs. He he, you'll you'll see him um, carry tight ends down the seam, which to me, with modern day off ball linebackers, you better be able to play on passing downs. He can. He's also an unbelievable blitzer. It it really all just comes back to the lack of length, which does show up on tape where he does sometimes struggle to stack and shed because offensive linemen can get a hold of him. But if you're taking other linebackers above him, 
like that. I, I don't know. That's just not for me. I, I think to, to, to overreact, which we love to do as NFL draft media is overreact to a guy not testing or a guy testing slightly worse than you thought he was going to. Uh, I don't know. To, to me, uh, there's no way Nicobe Dean should, should fall into the first round if teams have taken linebackers in the first round. Uh, I guess the only thing I haven't hit, secondary corner and safety-wise, obviously kind of sauce Gardner headlines. Some of that, how do you view those two positions in the draft and what, what kind of, I guess, their value is in terms of how many guys are taken at each position in the first round? So this corner class is awesome. Um, obviously, like sauce, is, sauce, Derek Stingley, Trent McDuffie, I think all three are, are probably top 15 picks. Um, I think sim- similar to, uh, to Thibodeau, Stingley's been tagged with, like th- this, this guy's got off-field character concerns. He's not super committed. Um, Derek, Derek Stingley. I, I mean, I, I've I, I've got a couple bets on the draft uh, this weekend that I'm hoping cash, and they, they involve Derek Stingley going quite early. So uh, I I hope NFL teams uh, just watch the tape and understand that this man is a all pro type talent. Uh, and Sauce similarly. Like so, Sauce is so ridiculously good in press press coverage. Stingley is just a an absolute um, marvel in terms of uh, athletic tools. And then McDuffie from Washington, he's kind of the smaller feistier guy who can kind of play inside, can kind of play any type of coverage. So you really great player there. Um, there's also a couple other corners. There's kind of like another three corners who could end up in the first round, which is Andrew Booth from Clemson, Kyler Gordon from Washington and Kyrie Elam from Florida. And, and all three of those guys, I wouldn't be surprised if, if two of the three end up in the, in the back end of the first round. Um, and there's a lot of depth in this corner class, too. It's a good year to want, uh, I think, pretty much just defensive players in general. The, the, they're a lot sexier this year than, than the offensive players. Um, and the safety class, I mean, it's headlined by Kyle Hamilton, who's got unbelievable length, instincts, and range for, for a safety uh, he can play single high. He can play too deep. He can play in the box. He can line up as like an overhang big nickel type. Um, so I think he's going the first round, obviously. Uh, Daxton Hill from Michigan should because his cover versatility. He, he's kind of a, a guy who could play deep safety if you want, but I think you get your most value with him covering uh, modern slot receivers in the NFL as a nickel. Um, and then Lewis Seen from Georgia, I think, could very well sneak into the back end of the first round after the way he tested and the way he hits. Uh, I think he, he runs the alley better than anyone uh, in this class. And it, when Lewis seen hits you, you, you remember it for a week. So it's a really good defensive back class. The top 10, like, I feel like if there's, you're talking about like draft night storylines in terms of the team aspects, you have the two New York teams, right? You've got the giants at what six or five and seven, excuse me. And then the jets at four and 10, uh, I guess best way to ask this, how are they going to screw this up? What are they both going to do? Uh, it sounds like the Jets might take Jermaine Johnson fourth overall. Jermaine Johnson, great player from Florida State, but should not be going fourth overall. So it sounds like that might be their move. Uh, and, and honestly, the Giants, uh, they hired Joe uh, Schoen from uh, Buffalo, who'd been uh, the assistant GM to Brandon Bean. So hey, the Giants might might do this thing right. And uh, I'm hopeful between uh, – uh, the new GM and Brian Dable that they kind of figured this thing out. Um, but again, both, both New York teams have such a history of fucking this up that I won't be surprised if they both do. Yeah, no, no kidding on that one. Atlanta at eight is interesting. 
there's probably it seemed like there was a t- tiny bit of buzz about them possibly taking a quarterback. I doubt it, but if like it's not Atlanta, I guess the Carolina in there. Let's just say without those two, where do you think the first quarterback goes if it's not Atlanta or Carolina at uh, six and eight respectively? I guess I did that backwards, but yeah. I think Seattle seriously considers it. Um, so you're not buying but, that you love Drew Locke. I've read a decent amount of that. I'm like, ah, I've seen that. I don't know about that. I, I think they love Geno Smith more than, than Drew Locke, to be okay. honest. And, and, and so the, the reason I don't think it's – Seattle loves to just go off the wall and draft someone no one's expecting. So they'll probably draft a corner from UTSA named Tariq Woolen, who's supposed to go in the third round. That's their move. <laughs> Uh, so I think it's, it's the saints, the saints are where, because they have the two first round picks, uh, because they could package those to move up if, if they want to, I think that's the place that I, I, I feel most comfortable. Um, and I don't think we get past the Steelers without a quarterback going. Okay. Yeah, that, uh, that, that checks out that, that we have a lot of saints fans that listen, obviously Mississippi's big time saints country, like. I think, like, Jameis was kind of coming into his own, but I think, like, this is, like, the you mentioned, like, it not being a guy coming over to take over the franchise. They have the luxury to kind of sit a guy in the short term. I think this is, like, almost like the perfect Saints draft class because, you know, you can go through a year or maybe even two if it works out with Winston, but obviously you're not committing the franchise to that guy. And so I think you're kind of on something there. I think they draft the quarterback. I hope they do. I'm kind of interested to see where that checks out. Running backs. That was the last thing I didn't get to. How do you view the running backs in this class? So it, it, it's a solid year to want a running back. It's, there's not like a Saquon Barkley, Ezekiel Elliott, this guy's going in the first round no matter what type running back. Um, I'm not sure. The, the NFL has a tendency. Like I, I don't think you should ever draft a running back in the first round. There's just not enough value in it. But the NFL has a tendency for someone to always do it anyway. So if a team's going to do it, I think it's going to be Iowa State's Brees Hall. Um, just because he's kind of the total package in terms of uh, pass catching ability, uh, he can he can pass protect well enough. Um, he, he he's got unbelievable contact balance and burst. So if anyone's going to take a running back in the first round, they'll take him. Um, and then I think you get Kenneth Walker from Michigan State uh, and Isaiah Spiller are probably the next two off the board. Uh, Walker's got unbelievable uh, instincts and, and and kind of he 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 has this innate ability to turn nothing into an 80 yard touchdown. He just un- unbelievable kind of uh, peripheral vision. Um, Spiller's a, a one cut physical tough guy runner who I, I really like. And I think he's kind of more of a third round guy. So those, those I think are the three guys in this class. I, I believe can be starting running backs in the NFL pretty early. Um, after that, there's a ton of different, if you, if you want a, uh, a pass catching back. There's James Cook from Georgia, who, who's uh, obviously Dalvin Cook's little brother. If you want more of a, a rugged, uh, underutilized college back, Damian Pierce from Florida is a really fun one. Um, best pass protector in this class is probably Kyron Williams from Notre Dame. Another pass catcher, Tyler Beatty from Missouri. Um, one of my personal favorites is Pierre Strong from South Dakota State who I think could be kind of the Elijah Mitchell of this class. So it's a, it's a good year to, to not need a running back per se, but if you, if you want to juice up your backfield, it's a good year to grab one. Jerry on Ely, interesting, interesting guy from an Ole Miss perspective because so he, saw, he, he was a coveted five-star guy during one of those Matt, last Matt Luke classes. But at the, I would say a year out, it was like, oh, this kid's going to be a first-round draft pick in the MLB draft. He's probably not showing up to campus. 
had a rough senior year, hit like 270. All of a sudden, he shows up at campus. I would say he's one of the few bright spots of that 2019 Rich Rod offense. But by the end of his career, I mean, Snoop Connor was a fan favorite uh, by the end of it. Henry Parrish was a really good running back for Ole Miss. And I think I would, argue, I would say from an Ole Miss fan perspective, I think they were frustrated with Jerry Ely. He went from like this home run hitter to a guy that got tackled very easily, but clearly a talented athletic guy. How do you kind of view him as a prospect? Do you think he gets drafted? I don't know if he'll get drafted, but I think um, he'll he'll definitely be a priority free agent because uh, he he's got pretty natural elusiveness. Um, he's he's laterally explosive. He didn't test as well as I would have hoped. He catches the football pretty well though, so he's an interesting kind of like satellite back, pass catching back. I think to bring in as a priority free agent. Um, but you're right. You kind of hit the, the it on the head with he doesn't he doesn't break tackles consistently enough, and he doesn't have good enough vision, and, and that's what's help holding him back. And, and you mentioned Snoop Connor, and, and I think the difference there is Snoop Connor is this kind of rugged, uh, physical. Runner who can motor for sure, and, and, and he his contact balance is what I think. Like I think Snoop's going to get drafted, and I think Snoop's going to quickly probably find some sort of role. And I think Snoop's got traits that translate to special teams too, which is how you make the NFL as a third string running back. So uh, yeah, I, I don't I don't think Ely gets drafted, but I do think Snoop will. That's interesting because. So, like, Snoop was the last guy they took in the 2019 class. There were actually a couple of recruiting guys at the time on the previous staff that were kind of like, oh, yeah, well, we shouldn't have taken this guy is what the fans told us. I think there was some angst about giving him a scholarship. And then he literally played from the time he set foot at Ole Miss until the time he left. It was probably the most fans' favorite running back by the end. Seems like a good kid and a hard worker as well. So, um, that to me was another guy that, like, in four years – if he has a role in an NFL running back rotation, I'm like, yeah, I'm not surprised at all. Last thing before I let you get out of here, just your favorite late round sleepers, whichever way you want to go with it. What are guys that maybe someone's not talking about that you think will make a career for themselves in the NFL? Name as many as you want. Ooh, what a question to bring to the table. <laughs> um, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll go kind of small school deep sleeper. Um, maybe not so much a sleeper in, in NFL draft circles, but a guy who showed up to the senior bowl, uh, as a late call-up and out of nowhere, out of fantastic week, um, Missouri State's Eric Johnson, just unbelievable combo of, of versatility, length, and, and quickness. So I like him a lot if we're talking small school. Um, there's a lot of DBs in this class that I, that I think are really fun and, and uh, maybe don't get drafted but find their ways onto rosters because they're feisty as hell. Um, one that comes to mind for me is uh, Jazeer Taylor from uh, Wake Forest. I think he's got – a lot of nickel upside. I don't think he'll get drafted, but he, he's a fun one. Um, going into the trenches, more of a, a fourth-round-ish guy, Ioma Uwazuriki from Iowa State. He's this mammoth of a man, like uh, 6'6", 320, and he played five-tech. He played four-eye. He, he played nose. And I think that's just a, such a fun piece to kind of get on day three of the draft and can kind of play all over your defensive front for you. Um who else? Who else? I gotta say as many as I can, so I, I at least get one of these guys right in the long term. There you um, go. Increase the odds. There, there are so many good receivers in this draft, uh, and, and I think just like if you go back to and and, and watch the Senior Bowl tape, uh, pretty much every guy who showed the Senior Bowl looked good there. Uh, and, and let's stick. Uh, I'll, I'll give you two, and, and then I'll finally stop. 
Uh, Khalil Shakir from Boise State. He, uh, I think he's the Amon Ross St. Brown of this class where he's going to get drafted too low and immediately become an impact player in the NFL because he's tough as hell. He, he's a, a, a smart route runner, and he does a lot with the ball in his hands. Uh, and Vilas Jones Jr. Uh, from Tennessee, who was a USC transfer, finally kind of had it all come together this year uh, with Josh Hupel in town. And one of the best return men in this class, and he showed up at the Senior Bowl, and he, he put on a route running clinic, which was not something Hupel's offense asked him to do much of. So it was awesome to see him do it. And I think he, he's a guy who he could sneak into the third round and be a, a quickly find a, a, a big role in the NFL. He is Rob Paul, co-host of Seven Rounds in Heaven on the Sports Shrink Network, Substack, robpaul.substack.com. Check him out on Twitter, a great follow, at Rob underscore Paul. If you don't know how to spell that, I don't know how you turn this podcast on. I appreciate the time, my man. This was great stuff. I always enjoy doing this, and we'll definitely do this again next year. Hopefully Matt Corral goes in the first round. There we go. All right, that is our show. If you made it to the end, I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Rob Paul. Great guy, knows what he's talking about, and uh, a Canadian football guy instead of a hockey guy. How can you not like that? So, anyway, appreciate his time. We have him on every year. And uh, really interesting NFL draft, even though it's not the strongest class up and down, but some, uh, some interesting strategy to be had up, particularly towards the first, um, I'd say 15 picks of the first round, and really just the first round in general. So, Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, stay tuned. We'll, we'll have a Friday show. I think we have Mailbag Friday and then paired with a Weldon Rodenberg spring football recap. I actually already recorded that after Rob Paul, um, but that'll drop on Thursday night after Mailbag or paired with Mailbag Friday. Got into a lot of different stuff. The quarterback battle, uh, where Ole Miss needs to formulate some more depth, the offensive line, and a couple other different things, and some recruiting stuff. Uh, Weldon had some thoughts on what Ole Miss is doing regarding recruiting high school quarterbacks and why. And then an absolutely dynamite soccer corner. Maybe the greatest soccer corner we have ever done as the English Premier League season winds down and the United States is in the World Cup uh, in the same group as England, which, as you know, we haven't been worried about since 1776. So great soccer corner, great football thoughts. Stay tuned for that on Friday, and y'all have a great middle of your week. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.